Welcome to another episode of the Digital Humanities and East Asian Studies podcast. I'm Amanda Schumann. Co-hosting with me today is new co-host, Pok Engman, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Freiburg, here with me working on the Maoist Legacy Project. Welcome, Pok. Thank you. Before we go ahead, I was wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and the project you're working on, maybe a little bit about your background first and then the project you're working on right now. Yeah, sure. Yeah, my background is uh, that I uh, have been doing Chinese studies in Sweden and in France, and since two years back I'm here in Freiburg, where, as you said, I'm working with uh, in our project on this uh, digitization project, and parallelly I'm doing uh, my own project which is centered on Shanghai capitalists. And for the digital humanities point, it's mostly the work with the database that we're doing. And I'm trying to explore sort of how we can use different digital tools like network analysis to kind of explore our database and help us in constructing. Great, thanks. Today, uh, our special guest is Javier Cha, a historian of Korea and East Asia, interested broadly in interpreting the history of Korea, especially in the medieval and early modern periods, in new and meaningful ways. He's focused his work in this arena, at least so far, on Confucianism, intellectual and cultural history, and historiography. He's currently working on a book-length project that examines medieval Korea's transition from a legislated to a functional aristocracy and the roles that Confucian neoclassical thought invented traditions, prophecy, and spouse selection played in this process. He's also interested in South Korea's digital transformation, as well as computational analysis of historical data. He's known in the digital humanities world a bit already, has participated in various workshops and events held at places like Harvard, UCLA, and he was an inaugural invitee to Stanford's DH Asia initiative. A video of his talk can be found on Vimeo. We'll post a link to that on our website. In fact, uh, his second monograph project explores the coalescence of neo-Confucian schools and major literary trends in early modern Korea using computational methods. He's already completed a pilot phase for this project in which he's collected and analyzed three data sets. He's about to make a big move and join the Leiden University Center for Digital Humanities. He's here today to chat with us mostly about data visualization and networks, and what he sees in the future of this growing trend in digital humanities, as well as in the field of East Asian or Asian studies. Part of the reason I've asked him to speak with us about these topics is because data visualization networks, these topics are fast becoming popular methods for historians and not just social scientists to use in their research, and also because there are several tools now available to make the process less painful. Many of us, some of these are free as well. You can download them. And we at the Maoist Legacy Project here in Freiburg have a direct interest in seeing how we can use such tools successfully within our own research, as Pook has just mentioned. So Javier, thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with us. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me here. It's my pleasure. You know, let's just jump right in and start, or actually, before we jump in and start talking about what you've been working on, can you tell us a little bit more about your background, not just in terms of East Asian studies, but let's talk specifically how you've gotten to the point you're at now in digital humanities or digital projects in general? The usual story I give to people is that uh, back in high school, during the dot-com era in the 90s, I was into coding, and I never had formal training in it, just that something I did for fun, and 
there were times when a couple of high school friends and I tried to launch a startup and this kind of thing. And when I went to university in Canada, before I went to university, my high school history teacher, because she knew that I also really enjoyed studying history, encouraged me to go to UBC, University of British Columbia, because she knew uh, particularly I was interested in East Asian history. So I went there and at some point in my undergraduate, in the middle of my undergraduate program, I had to make a choice. Um, should I try to find some kind of meaningful career in the, in the IT industry or should I consider doing graduate level work in East Asian history? And eventually I ended up choosing the latter. So I went to a master's program and then eventually to the PhD program in, uh, in Korean history. And in the middle of my PhD program, I happened to be in a department where Peter Ball was actively promoting computational methods. And he happened to be one of my uh, advisors and one of my PhD committee members. I took a seminar and realized that this background I had can be made quite useful in the kind of questions I wanted to pursue in my PhD work. So that's how it began. And from there, you mentioned uh, some of the workshops and events um, I participated over the years. So this started around roughly, uh, so when I look at my old file names, they are labeled 2009. So around the year 2009, I started building very experimental data sets. A lot of them have been inspired initially by uh, Peter's seminar. And eventually I started to, ex to ex uh, branch out and try a new and different things. So from 2009, I started learning things like GIS, network analysis, text analysis, and try to figure out new and interesting ways of doing historical research using these methods. So from there, there were, I think, a lot of people who have tried doing uh, digital humanities or digital history or computational methods, they would know a lot of the projects I tried out, they ended up returning nothing meaningful. So I ended up scrapping them. But a couple of things out of the, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 different projects I tried to do on my own, ended up being quite interesting. So out of that, you mentioned the book I'm working on, and uh, there might be a, an article or something that I'll be working on, and yeah, I can talk about that later. It's very interesting that you said that you had 20 to 30 different projects, and many of them failed, or you had to scrap them because the results weren't that interesting. I was wondering if you could step back a little bit and talk to us a little about how these projects, whether or not they're visualization, but computational methods in general, fit into your research questions, or how your research questions drove you to feel a need to use these computational methods. I think sometimes people who might perhaps be interested in digital humanities, but they, they don't necessarily have a good research question that requires a computational method. So for you, what was it that you felt that was driving you towards the computational methods? So one of the challenges uh, I encountered was the fact that I'm, I'm a medievalist, and in part I do the early modern period. When we get to the early modern period, the data sets improve quite a bit. But I, I'm a specialist of a period where data quality is very poor. We don't have a whole lot of primary sources to begin with, right? So finding a good bundle of uh, data that can be analyzed using software, the chance is quite rare. So I, I've been insisting on coming up with research questions first, and then see if I can use computational methods afterwards. And this is the kind of the mode that I've been operating on throughout uh, all these years. Eventually, I want to study contemporary culture. And, and when you get to research topics related to contemporary culture, then you got very, very large and rich and very uh, high quality data sets. And I think um, a lot of the projects out there have the advantage of having access to this kind of data sets. But in my case, for the, the kind of uh, period of Korean history I'm looking at, I have to be very careful. Yeah, the question related to this uh, was, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the data sets that you're working with. And 
uh, you've been working with uh, Cytoscape, which is this uh, data visualization, network visualization tool, which was originally developed for biology and molecular analysis. And I've been working with Gephi, which is a similar uh, software. But uh, most of the approaches uh, using this kind of software have been either in, in these kind of hard sciences or what has come very strongly is these social media API uh, networks, which work with vast uh, amounts of data and, you know, very powerful visualization so as a historian how how does the approach differ from say the approach of a social scientist maybe i'll explain this uh, using a couple of examples so amanda asked me about some of the my past fail projects right and a lot of them actually involved kind of a very simplistic frequency counts so i would go to um, court records and try to find identify instances of famine and famine relief or strange weather patterns or i would get a collection of biographies and try to find some patterns there right the results um i mean there's some spikes and interesting periods where there's a lot of records about something, but in the end, I didn't find them particularly meaningful, right? And with some of the existing high-quality data sets, in the case of Korean history, uh, one of the pioneers of humanities computing was Edward Wagner, who, uh, who used to teach at Harvard. And he uh, was known for the database, nearly full, nearly complete one, a database of civil service examination degree holders. And this is a very rich, very high quality data set that also happens to include family relationships. But what is interesting is that Korean historians, since this database has been available, I would say about in different forms, right, maybe 20 years or so, have mainly tabulated it, right? And this is in some ways, how we, in the history field, this is how we usually handle quantitative data, right? We tabulate it, right? And you tally it. In Excel terms, you make pivot tables, right? But I wanted to try something different. So I wanted to see those, uh, I mentioned family relationships, right? So I wanted to see the agnatic and affinal connections. So father-to-son relationships, as well as ego-to-in-law relationships. So ego-to-wife and wife's father, that kind of relationship, so that we can come up with a different read of the data set and hopefully come up with a new interpretation of the past rather than just coming up with numbers and calculating it and adding some formula and then coming up with some, I don't know, average or this sort of figures. So when I use data visualization, I'm reluctant to call it analysis. I think when you get to modern and contemporary data sets, you can actually do a lot of interesting work with social scientists and apply some of those methods. But in the case of my time period, I think I would prefer to use visualization to get a sense of what the patterns are, and then I intervene as a historian and make an interpretation out of the visualization. And in you know, with that specific data set, was that the uh, one related to the spousal selection in your monograph? Yes, that's what it ended up becoming. So when I started, I did the same thing. I uh, started tabulating it, and I wanted to see if there was something that previous historians had missed. Uh, I tried to do it by region, by location. I ran it in GIS, and then I found out that um, even before this technology was available. Wagner and some of these historians have already seen the same patterns I was seeing on my screen, right? So I had this moment when I thought, okay, I, I got this data set, I cleaned it up, I worked on it. Is there something interesting I can do with this, right? Something that previous historians haven't found. The answer was a uh, spouse selection. 
And what specifically was different? So I would say uh, in Wagner's generation, first of all, the computers couldn't do this kind of network analysis. I think the software just wasn't available. There were some social network analysis software, but they couldn't handle Chinese characters. And I think that the data set is quite complex. Uh, I can explain this a, a bit later what I mean by this. And this kind of question wasn't pursued at all. I tried different kinds of social network analysis software. I found most of them not very useful for my research question. And eventually, I ended up liking Cytoscape quite a bit for reasons of because of that complexity of the data set, the nature of this data set. I guess my question is sort of with the spousal selection, what kind of new sort of conclusions were you able to draw from using this uh, network analysis software on that data set that, you know, led you to something new that previous generations didn't conclude? When I first got the data set, I didn't know what to ask. I thought I was pursuing something. There's something to be found here. So I went to training workshops and learned about different network analysis software. And eventually, I think I found something, right? So this will be one of the major themes that I'm going to pursue in the second Brook project you mentioned. So I think this has to do with the question of, in Korean history, what is a Yangban? So if anybody's interested, at the Stanford lecture I mentioned toward the end, this is something that was I ended up saying because I was inspired by one of uh, Tom Mulaney's questions. So it, it became a project where I not only question existing terminologies, but try to identify certain historical entities for which there's no name. So in Korean history, we have this idea that the elite of early modern Korea, they were the, the ruling elite, they were called the Yangban. And it had to do with the prestige that came from having an official career in, in the civil or military branches of central bureaucracy. So Yangban means the two branches, the civil and military branches. So the prestige that comes from it defined you as an elite. We know this, right? And we know there are some famous families out there. And before, with this data set, they tallied it, and then they saw which families were the most dominant ones. But using this method, I began to see that within the families, there were particular segments that were more successful than others. So we could see things in more interesting detail. And with this network analysis, network visualization, I began to see that some families that, if you look at by frequency, don't seem to be so prominent, but in the network visualization, they are actually very well connected to some very, very powerful figures. And if you know the history of this period, you know that these are very, very powerful figures. So this really started to change the way I, I look at the history of this time periods. Another interesting thing is before in passing, for example, in the 15th century, there was a family called uh, Andong Kwan, the Andong Kwan descent group, one of the most successful descent groups in Korea. Even today, there, there, there are so many of them, right? And if you look at by the tally, uh, they produce the highest number of civil examination degree holders after the royal family. But of course, the Andong Kwan, they didn't operate as a unit amongst the agnatic group alone. It's not just Andong Kwan's, other Andong Kwan's, they were political allies. They had contacts with other families, people with other surnames. And of course, once you have close association with some of these, mem uh, some of these family members, you try to secure that by having marriage ties. And what I found interesting is that in this civil examination data set, I could identify these people in a, in a very extensive way in the region of, I think for the two centuries I was looking at, I had 12,000 nodes. And before, some social historians have noticed that family relationships and family marriage ties were very important for the Andong Kwan political group. And what I found out as I was working on the presentation for Stanford DH Asia was that this network of marriage ties was actually much, much more extensive than we thought before. And the reason we could see this, we could visualize it, was because I fed it 
in Cytoscape. This kind of research wasn't possible just by looking at it in a case-by-case basis. Can you talk a little bit about the size of the data set itself when you were using it in Cytoscape? This is interesting. So the degree holders themselves, there are 5,000 for the years between uh, 1393 and 1608. And once you get to the 1890s, this becomes uh, about 14,600 in total. There are a few duplicates because some some people, they end up receiving more than one degree, right? They pass the exam more than once. And each individual has information about their family members, father, grandfather, father-in-law, and maternal grandfather. And from this, I can convert this information into, in uh, network visualization, we create a note list and edge list. So I have a edge list where everybody's converted into a relationship as father to son or father-in-law to son-in-law. And then for each node, I have a bunch of attributes corresponding to each individual. And then I fed this to Cytoscape. And the reason I fed to Cytoscape is because at least when I started learning uh, network analysis, a lot of the software I was using in the training program didn't support Unicode. And uh, I think for the hard scientists, this wasn't an issue. They just told me to code the individuals in some uh, an ID number or something, right? <laughs> but uh, I wasn't so comfortable with that. Because once you did that, all these individuals became an ID. And it became very difficult for me to see who these people were. And it also became very difficult for me to check for errors and discrepancies. So I wanted to use a program that supported Unicode. And later, I also found out that a lot of the network analysis to software, they were designed for literally social network analysis. So in other words, the, the kind of uh, networks that we see uh, that get created when you visualize Twitter networks, friendship networks, Facebook networks, right? So you have individual nodes that are able to have many, many connections because there's no limits to how many uh, friends you can have, right? And of course, some people are more friends than others. So the software was geared towards identifying hubs and clusters and this kind of analysis. But in the case of marriage networks, because you're technically supposed to have only one spouse, the shape of the networks that you saw, that I saw in the in the visualization was very, very strange. For lack of a better word, I called it organic. And interestingly enough, uh, the only software that was able to give me a visualization that to me looked like there was something there was Cytoscape. And I think the reason was because, uh, like Hook mentioned, it is the software that was designed for bioinformatics. Things like protein chains and such, very complex networks, right? So there were some visualization algorithms there that were able to help me see this strange, very weird nested rings. But this also showed me that uh, there were clusters, not in the sense where we see uh, Facebook friendship cluster networks, but more like a lot of edges that exist in curves, but they are connected to each other. And it was huge. Something like more than 70% of the data set, they were related to each other by marriage. Not that surprising, actually. (laughs) But I don't think these people even knew that they were related to each other. Once you go that distant, I think, and technically, according to Confucian canon, you were not supposed to marry uh, your close cousins. There's a degree of consanguinity to observe, right? They were, in some ways, had connections to each other by marriage. At least 70% of them at least for the period I looked at. So step back a, a second and talk about the tool it's, uh, the tool itself, Cytoscape. Can you talk a little bit about the learning curve to using one of these tools and what kind of issues you have run into using these tools or more broadly in working on a project like this? About 70 to 80% of the time was spent on cleaning my data. Right? <laughs> um, so one of the issues I ran into was because Wagner's database was, his project began in the 70s and it started on, on, on a punch card. So somewhat 
published right online. It was published in the 1990s into an online database in a CD-ROM format and eventually ported to HTML. Uh, Unicode was an early stage and there were a lot of characters that were not available in the code. So they were left as an image or they were just broken in the HTML version. So cleaning it took a long time. And as for the learning curve, I actually held a um, kind of like a crash course, like a workshop at Stanford. So that was part of the thing we had to do. All the invitees, we had to have one lecture and uh, one workshop related to our research, right? And I introduced Cytoscape, right? And some people, I think uh, they found it a bit difficult to use, but some people who were quite comfortable operating with software installation and, I don't know, going to menus and selecting features, this kind of thing, they actually found it surprisingly straightforward and simple. And of course, sometimes uh, the features tend to be buried in the software. Sorry, can I ask just one question before <laughs> before you continue there? Um, is that available anywhere online, your Stanford workshop? Oscilloscape is open source. Oh, the workshop. The workshop wasn't recorded, unfortunately. And it was like a hands-on thing anyways. I mainly gave some demos and went around the, the room to help people. And I gave them sample data sets that I, I provided them sample data sets on USB. I think it was USB. They fed it to the software and then tried to visualize it. I almost feel like that would be just as useful as the le- as the lecture itself. I mean, one of the issues sometimes with, you know, with people who are somewhat, I wouldn't say necessarily reluctant, but um, to, to use digital methods, it seems to be less that, of course, they're interested in using it for their research, but they're not so sure of how to use the tool itself. Like they can download it, but a lot of the sort of um, workshops or tutorials online I mean, I've never seen one <laughs> geared towards humanists or, or historians or, or this kind of thing. So I almost feel like that would be a really useful tutorial to have online where you would actually be showing people, you know, in your specific case, how you worked with Cytoscape after cleaning up your data set, how you actually worked with Cytoscape to create something. I just, I mean, I think the recording of the lecture itself is very interesting because, of course, that's the big issue is how does the, your historical research question drive your need or your wanting? to use a computational method. But then on the flip side, you always have, I'm somewhat, I'm not a person who's worked with visualization tools in the past either. And we're just, I mean, Puck has done some here and we're just starting to to look at these things and use them. But for someone who's unfamiliar with it completely, it's rather intimidating to go online, download a tool, especially if it's made for molecular biologists, that all of the sort of instructions on how to use it and examples of how it's been implemented are entirely written by biologists um, that's not or hard scientists it's not very helpful for those of us who are who are in the humanities so yeah it's a shame that that wasn't recorded but perhaps in the future you know maybe next year uh, they'll record the workshops too I think you bring up an excellent point and having a some kind of repository where we have a collection of these kind of demos will be very useful I mean I know that there were there are other invitees who were there I mean I could think of the same thing with other projects I mean Marcus project being one of them but other projects as well, where part of it is about the research, or a large part of it is about the research and, and what you've come up with in the end. But if we're trying to attract more people to use these sorts of methods or consider them as valid methods of analysis in the field of using a data set to then produce something new that would then lead to a new interpretation or analysis, then we've got to, we've got to think of ways in order to encourage more people to, to do it. And I think a repository of demos or workshops, I mean, I can think of other, like you, I'm, I'm sure you've sat through a lot of these workshops where people do the demos, but nobody records them. 
So unless you're there in person, you don't actually get to sit through it and see it. Yes, I mean, part of it is a hands-on, is the issue of being hands-on where, you know, it's very hard to learn to use a tool if you're just seeing it on a screen or seeing a lecture or of it and you're not actually in front of, you know, a computer or something and being able to use it. But I'll get off my soapbox on that. No, I think I think I have an excellent point, though. Um, it, it should be quite easy to just create some YouTube videos, for example, and go through it step by step and slowly and explain the steps, right? The, the instructions to use a tool can sometimes be cryptic. You know, how you install it and how you start using it are cryptic. And, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of getting over that first hump after you've installed it and played around with something, a sample like a lot of the samples and stuff, yeah, they're just, they're written for hard scientists. So, you know, you sit there and you go, okay, well, what would my data set look like? I mean, just trying to visualize that is really difficult if you don't have an example. So. I find that in many ways, uh, the humanities, we, we deal with some, a more complex issue in a way. Maybe the data sets, they're not so large and you don't have to use um, some very complex mathematical formula or anything like this. But we try to find something that in many ways uh, what others haven't tried. And this whole idea of using data to data analysis or data visualization to the humanities is still very new. And we're still figuring out what works and what doesn't. Yet, uh, to get back to that, uh, what you were saying earlier about how you uh, have been using these digital tools to to reconceptualize uh, the history that you're working on. I mean, you were uh, talking uh, before we started, you mentioned this uh, obsession that you have of uh, new approaches a new uh, you know interpretation of history but i mean how how does like for example a network driven you know view of history what what are the, the assumptions that we we have when we go into this you know from a network point of view for example i think in some ways i'm i think it goes back to my interest in historiography Last year, in not last year, it was January of this year in Hong Kong, I had a conference on uh, periodization. So we went through uh, each major time period in Korean history and tried to historicize why the historic historiography has been shaped the way it's been shaped. And we try to propose what we might call 21st century perspective on Korea's past, right? We kind of rejected the idea of uh, dividing up the history of Korea into dynasties and come up with different divisions and also made it very clear that these divisions are kind of arbitrary and everything should be seen as part of some kind of set of dynamic processes and transitions, right? So this network approach, I think, is a part of my larger goal that has to do with coming up with a new perspective of Korean history. I would say in many ways, I'm also building up on the existing work of South Korea's uh, social and cultural historians, the kind of work they've been doing. And I'm kind of adding something that complements very well the kind of work they've been doing. So since the 90s, 1990s, uh, South Korean historians have been trying to be very critical of their own approaches to their own historiography, especially the historiography that was uh, solidified by their seniors, right? Their advisors and their advisor generation. And they try to do something, something different, right? And they start to challenge the existing notions of certain terms, certain assumptions that been, that's been made because of obsession with development or progress, this kind of ideas, modernity in the 60s. And they try to make it, make things more complicated and do it in a very empirically uh, sound way. So building on that, I wanted to do something interesting and different. 
So if you go back to my lectures or my work,、uh, a lot of times I bring up these terms that has been have been problematized in the last twenty years or so, and I'm adding a different perspective to it. Right, but in many ways they complement the kind of research that's been done、uh, by South Korean historians in the last twenty years. I was wondering if you could just, you know, tell us a little bit about what steps you would recommend for someone just getting started in visualization. Any sort of sage advice you have for those to get started? There are some very good books, right? I read some of them. There's a good number of them, so I would recommend for historians books like Historian's Macroscope, Programming Historian. Intro to Digital Humanities—they almost read like textbook. They are very well written. You can get started with those. I will recommend. It's very easy. You can just Google digital history examples, projects. You can find things like Republical Letters,、uh, some classics like Visualizing Emancipation. Interesting examples like in environmental history, you can look at、uh, William Turkle, who happens to be one of the authors of Programming Historian, who's in University of Ottawa, and he's very interesting because he he actually. Crosses over to the natural sciences as well, so he combines natural science methods with history, environmental history. In my case, I also drew a lot of inspiration from the French cultural historians and the French Annales School, because、so、I would go back to their classic works and see how, before the days of computing, they were asking very similar questions about how to use quantitative data, and they would draw maps that look like GIS maps in a book on cultural history. So these kind of things、uh, I found very interesting. In some ways, going back in time also helps. This is how you get started, I think. And I would encourage many people who are starting in the digital humanities or digital history to attend events outside of their field. I found that very stimulating, needless to say, and I learn more from attending these, these events than events in my own field. So, for example, one, I would say one reason I one of my obsessions became、um, what I call the Unnamed, kind of like an ontology question, right? What are terms, right? What if you have entities that, when you do data visualization, you can see they exist, but because nobody in the 19th century named it, we never started a, a debate as to how we should name this entity and what it actually meant, right? And what it actually signifies, right? In that case, it just remains unnamed, and we don't talk about it. And this kind of question, I don't think it would have occurred to me unless I went to some of these events where network scientists or data scientists who are working on data sets that have nothing to do with my field. Field, but they're using these data sets to infer these categories, categories that don't yet exist. And this got me thinking: like, isn't this something that we can talk about in the context of history as well? Right? Terms like I, I mentioned Yangban, or terms like even Renaissance. A lot of the debates within Confucian studies, a lot of them have to do with pretty recent constructs, 18th, 19th century constructs. Somebody at some point coined these terms, and then we started debating about them for about 100, 200 years. But if, if nobody took interest in some of these phenomena, we don't talk about it much. <laughs> so this will be something I'm going to be pursuing in the near future as well as a part of my second project. But the idea came from me sitting in the middle of I don't know some some random DH conference or workshop thinking about these things, right? While the speaker is talking about something else. I mean, this I think when you speak to somebody like somebody in French history field, they've been talking about it since. Maybe around around 2005 or so, right? And now I think DH is one way we can do something like this, right? So, can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing in Leiden and、uh, your up, the upcoming sort of projects that you'll be working on there, as well as other sorts of work you have planned? In Leiden, it's very exciting because we are launching the new、uh, Leiden University Center for Digital Humanities. In many ways, I'm I'm still figuring out what my role there would be. So far, I I propose my courses and I have a rough sense of what the program will look like. 
But it is very clear that Leiden wants to uh, invest heavily in the digital humanities and uh, media studies and such. I'm very excited about it. I guess I will learn more once I get there. So you're right, I'm going there in November. And a lot of my first year at Leiden, I think I'll be helping the center. So far, I don't have concrete plans, but I have some ideas as to what kind of projects I want to pursue. And because I'm new to Europe, things like grants and building institutional ties, networking with other faculty members, none of these things have started for me. But I do have some ideas, things like some of the issues I brought up, like ontology, unnamed historical entities, asking new interesting questions, even questions like eventually I want to get to the questions of what is digital history in the sense of, for example, is a hypothetical. If you want to do social history of 2016 in the year 2050, how do you do that? I don't think I can give clear answers as to what historians in the year 2050 should be doing. But I think a kind of a small scale projects where questions that are related to this broader issue of what is digital history and can be made useful for historians in the year 2050, I think they can be pursued. So for example, if you do social history of, I don't know, year 2004, when internet forums were very popular or blogs, this is like a first generation blogs, right? Then your sources are in data centers, in server farms and the existing hard drives. So even simple questions, questions like, how do you read your source? How do you uncover them, right? It requires some kind of uh, archaeology in a way, right? The, the challenge of having to go through and reconstruct a server farm, I think these kind of questions, I don't think we, we have ever asked. Maybe some people are doing it right now, I don't know, but this is something that I've been thinking about in, uh, in the last year or two, because we're talking about something like, I don't know, anywhere between a few hundred to sometimes like hundreds of thousands of hard drives. And how do you manage your source when you're a historian in year 2050? These kind of questions. A lot of things are open-ended at this point, and I'm very excited. And as you mentioned, it's a great place to be, and they love interesting questions. They love people who think differently. Digital humanities there is growing very fast. You know, with this issue that you're talking about with, um, I mean, it sort of relates to, I know we've, we've talked about this previously, but your concerns about sort of historical method and historical sources in the long term. I'm trying to think right now, as you were talking about that, as to where online you would go, what sort of repositories exist for for people who have existing data sets that they want to share. I mean, I know if we're talking about what I'm familiar with, modern Chinese history, there isn't any right now. There's no sort of repository online where somebody, for example, maybe even someone who's not a historian, but let's say somebody like PRC history, someone like Andrew Walder, who at Stanford, who's worked, you know, um, quite a bit sort of with sociological methods of collection of, of data and created a lot of big data sets that have been used for network visualization in his own research and work. But that kind of thing I don't think is available anywhere online or rather even available openly. So I was wondering if you, you know, if you wanted to talk a little bit more about your own data sets and your ideas of, you know, you have said before, you know, how would you understand a data set as a historical source? But if you could talk a little bit both about that and also if you are a historian in 2050, where are these data sets? Do you think you would envision some, some sort of repository that would be run, I don't know, at an institutional level, people could go in and somehow get these data sets to use? 
Yeah, so this was one of the uh, issues we discussed at the July Leiden conference, right? Uh, sustainability, right? In, in a different sense, right? Um, how how long will these archives and our codes and our data sets last, right? Where do we preserve them? Will the libraries do this? Who maintains the servers? Who pays for them? I think it's a very complicated issue. Well, I mean, I think preservation in general, yeah. As you know, like this has been like a longstanding problem in digital humanities. You know, when I was thinking about your data sets in particular, or, you know, the fact that we have... Leiden and we're here in Freiburg and there's other things happening. You know, you've worked, you've worked a bit, I know, at least indirectly, but perhaps also directly with universities and people working in South Korea. And one thing that seems to, to me to be sort of um, something that has not been discussed too much is these issues of preservation and availability of data sets beyond sort of individual institutional level. Individual institutions. Yeah, that's a problem. It's a, yeah, it's a huge problem. You asked me what I'm going to be doing in Leiden, right? And I think more broadly, as a faculty member in digital humanities, I think a lot of my time will be spent on these institutional matters. So a lot of times when I need data sets, I have to fight with certain institutions, individuals that don't want to share, or they keep saying it's not ready for public use yet, or something like this, or they attach a subscription fee to it. And it's also very unclear where they'll be in 10 years, 20 years from now, right? In DH, we also talk about often on about uh, digital graveyards, right? Some projects that were very famous in the 1990s, and now they're missing links, broken links, and we don't know what's going on, right? I can think of one case in South Korea, there was a GIS project in the I think it was 2004, 2005, but it was funded for maybe two years by the Korean government, and it's been abandoned. And there is a good data set. They put a lot of money into it, a lot of energy into it, but it needs to be polished. A lot of the errors have to be fixed, but they are not. It is also very incredibly uh, difficult to download the data set. It just made it very difficult for you to access it. So mainly you just go there to visualize it on the website using this 2005 technology and then that's it so what happens to these things and there's also i think an issue of uh just the kind of question that we get very often right you look at something and then people go aren't you privileging certain groups that left behind these sources this kind of thing right i think in the future the kind of questions that social historians used to ask are we looking at only people who left behind writings for us people might ask are we only looking at digital archives that are easy to access so what if you want to uncover something that's been abandoned. I think that's also an interesting question that, that is worth pursuing, right? I mean, we asked that about digital archives, digital databases, this kind of thing too, of like, you know, what is... Those are formal databases, right? In the language of early modern history, might be something we might call official history, right? Official records. They're formally defined as a project and they're preserved with a certain set of ideas like, as to what, what they want to preserve in the source. But historians in the future might not be interested in the same thing we are, right? I think you're, I think you're right. I think that is likely that, you know, people in the future are not going to be interested in the same thing, but you know, that goes without saying. So I wanted to talk just briefly here at the end while we have a few minutes left about an article that you published in a journal called Asia Scape Digital Asia. And the article is called Digital Slash Humanities, New Media and Old Ways in South Korea. And you discuss sort of the historical background and rationale for South Korea's mass digitization efforts of cultural heritage. I should say that I was completely unaware of that. It's not something that I pay very close attention to in general, is digitization efforts of any of the governments in East Asia. So perhaps you know more about, you know, what's happening in places like Taiwan, Japan, China, and comparing it to the South Korea case. But I thought that this was really interesting because you do compare it to 
you know, you talk about this divide between, well, you talk basically about how these digitization projects in the humanities did not sort of spark, quote unquote, digital turn in the humanities as a whole. And, and in the article, I found it really interesting that you talked about the lack of sort of humanities involvement as far as, uh, you know, historians or individual humanists are concerned. In other words, there aren't really humanists participating in, in the discussions about, about how to go about these digitization projects. But you did mention, and this was really interesting to me, that the government of South Korea has allocated more than 10 times the annual budget of the NEH's Office of Digital Humanities for digitization projects alone. I thought this was really interesting. I was wondering, though, first, in what ways is the involvement or lack thereof, in this case, of humanists in these sort of government-run projects, something novel or different in South Korea? Because this is something that I, I think that there's quite a lot of these digitization projects in many countries, which are ostensibly for cultural heritage or whatnot, which I guess we could put under the umbrella of the humanities, in which there isn't necessarily a lot of involvement from humanists. Like, I'm wondering if, for example, projects that are run by Library of Congress, for example, may have involved people who worked at the Library of Congress, but they weren't necessarily asking for the involvement of historians at local universities to tell them what to digitize. So, you know, but I'm less familiar with South Korea. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this article and South Korea's investment in cultural heritage. So there are several strands that I discuss in this article, right? So one has to do with the uh, origin of current South Korean historiography, which had a lot to do with the context of industrial development in the 1960s and 70s. So the, the kind of questions people ask and have been challenging have derived from Korea's experience with the Cold War in the 60s and 70s and nation building and industrial development and such, right? And since then, as we all know, South Korea has been transitioning into a different kind of economy. An interesting thing is that since the 90s, when it was trying to transition in, into digital and more service-oriented economy, humanists haven't been not only not consulted, but humanists themselves didn't take a whole lot of interest in this. It was kind of like left as uh, something that government officials and maybe some think tanks, I, I don't even know what kind of intellectuals are involved in this process, but it's been happening, as we all know, right? South Korea is one of the leaders in uh, in the IT industry, in the IT world, right? But I don't see a whole lot of humanists talking about this, and I found this interesting. The article, I also looked at the origins of these databases that Koreanists use on a regular basis. Very few people have considered asking, why do these things exist? Who's funding them, right? We all know the government's involved in some ways, but why do we have such a wealth of digitized sources, right? So I, I looked at it, I interviewed some people, and what I found out was that in the 90s, in the late 90s, 1998 to be precise, there was the Asian financial crisis. So this this whole thing started as purely as an accident. So late 90s, South Korea hasn't even built an, an extensive internet uh, infrastructure yet. They knew it was the wave of the future, but they haven't really thought about it hard. And at this time, the Asian financial crisis happens, and the government wants to inject a stimulus package for unemployed people. So they launched a social program, and it was modeled after the New Deal. So they encouraged these people who used to be white-collar white, uh, white workers to do hard labor, <laughs> manual labor. People didn't want to do it. They are used to doing desk jobs, and now they're saying, you, you go build roads and do construction. So nobody applied for it. The government converted this into, okay, in that case, we'll allocate this money to three major institutions, 
in South Korea where you get to do a desk work involving digitization of cultural heritage. And this was happening around precisely the same time when South Korea decided to invest heavily also in hardware infrastructure, in communication networks. So this is how it took off, right? And it was a lot of money to start with. So more or less every year, the Korean government has been investing in the region of something like 50 million to like 80 million US dollars per year on digitization. And this is still happening. It's been very impressive. There are some issues with it. Some people complain about it, but more or less, we ended up with a ton of archives. And for pre-modern sources, they're more or less finished. So in terms of the choice of what they're digitizing and, and whatnot, or do you think that the choice is rather arbitrary, what they're choosing? If they're not having historians participate in choosing the pre-modern materials to digitize or to create um, databases with these materials, how are they choosing these? So once this funding became available, historians were involved, right? But to the extent of getting to choose which sources should take priority. And eventually they would ask for a, a call for applications, grant applications and then make different teams of scholars to compete for a project. But at the end of the day, the projects that would get the funding ended up just becoming a project that leads to building an archive. And in a lot of cases, they hire graduate students and they would ask a contractor to do the technical work for them. And after the project is finished, they don't pursue something that we might call digital humanities or digital history questions. The money was allocated for this project for about a year, two years maximum. And then once the project is finished, that's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm wondering, um, do, you, do you see parallels with this and say, the case and example I could think of is, although I don't really understand the sort of infrastructure behind these, but the projects that exist in Taiwan, for example, for pre-modern Chinese history that are run, I think, through the National Palace Museum, but I could be wrong. You know, I'm just wondering if there, if you've ever done any sort of comparative look at how those are funded. No, I haven't yet. Yeah, this is something I want to look into. But in the case of Korea as well, you can say that the specific set of databases I looked at for this article, they are funded by the government and they're called a national DB collection. But this is not the only digitization effort that's been going on. There are individual ones that are being undertaken by the National Institute of Korean History and also Academy of Korean Studies. And these are run uh, rather independently of these projects. And I think those might have a more interesting parallel to the, the Taiwanese case you were talking about. Before we wrap up, is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about? The uh, accusation that's very common that DH projects are just, uh, we're pursuing empiricism, right? It's not philosophically sound and we're kind of doing it in an uncritical and not non-reflective way, right? I don't know if that's necessarily the case, right? If you think back to the kind of discussions we've been having in the last hour or so, right? I would say we've been asking some rather philosophically rich questions, and this is the kind of questions that we should be asking in the humanities. And I hope that this is becomes a part of humanities research and education in the near future. And in the case of uh, Korea, it's worrisome because some of the humanities departments are not necessarily being defunded, but they're being converted into technical training departments. I mentioned it briefly in my article, but I haven't written a, a whole an entire article about this. They're calling this humanities contents departments. So rather than having digital humanities, there are quite a few, um, I would say most tier two institutions in South Korea. I hope nobody gets offended. I call them tier two, <laughs> but there are actually quite a, quite a lot of universities in South Korea now that are promoting history contents, cultural contents, uh, humanities contents programs. And what they do there is basically take 
these data sets that are available through digitization and create animations, web comics, basically a media production. Nothing that is necessarily wrong with that, but this kind of training is happening in the absence of the more traditional humanities education, where you take a source to interpretation, do close reading, so you know the nuances, this kind of things.、Uh, what's been happening in these programs mainly is students, undergraduate students, taking these sources and making something that looks pretty, something that's cool. What comes out of it is basically a, a movie or a video game prototype, that sort of thing. I mean, I don't think humanities in the 21st century has to be done in written form necessarily. But what I find worrisome is that I spoke to some professors who are in charge of some of these programs, and they themselves told me that even in the real world, when these students go out and try to find a job, they are seen as not as competitive as students who have received more traditional humanities education and then went for vocational training afterwards. I mean, so that's like a broader problem that that exists. I mean, there are certain skills you acquire, you know, for example, like you said, interpreting a source, but also just questioning narratives and this kind of thing that sort of provokes close reading and critical thinking that you don't get. Although it's funny when you were talking about, you know, without questioning anything, how how they just want students to produce like a media animation or 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 one of these or something, you know, technically that's cool. For some reason, the very first thing I thought of was those horrible videos produced under by the the current Chinese government under Xi Jinping. Where these horrible propaganda、uh, cartoon videos that exist set to music that are supposed to, you know,、uh, have a certain sort of message or whatever a propaganda message. But it made me think of how what South Korea is doing there would be really popular in China. You know, let, let's not really talk about the narrative, but hey, let's take the narrative and make something cool and put it online. It's not teaching you anything、uh, as far as like the traditional sort of humanities training is concerned. But you know, so when I see this. Happening, I sometimes wonder whether people in the humanity, if humanists don't take the digital turn seriously, maybe this is one of the possible outcomes that something like this becomes the mainstream. And is this the kind of picture we want to see? Right? At least that's my view. Right? One of my rationales for pursuing the digital turn, digital methods. We have to be a part of this.、Uh, we actually we have to lead the transformation process of the humanities, right? What, what does it mean in the 21st century, right? All right. Well, hey, thanks, Javier. You know, for taking the time today to to talk to us both about your own projects and to sort of talk about the future of digital humanities as a whole. I'm glad that our discussion extended beyond just East Asian studies because I, even though I started this podcast as a way for people in East Asian studies to know about each other and hear about each other's projects, my long term hope is that it would also sort of inter- Interest or entice people to look at digital humanities beyond area studies. Sometimes when I look around projects that exist in sort of area studies field, I do see, for example, a lot of projects that I would call China studies projects, and I'm not really sure whether or not the people working on them have ever bothered to look beyond China studies at what else is happening, whether that's visualization and network analysis or text analysis or GIS or, or whatnot. It seems very sort of in this sort of world of just China studies or area studies in general. So you know, thanks for for that, and、uh, yeah, again, thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you, thank you for this opportunity. This was、uh, very interesting. This conversation. Thank you, Javier. It's good to know that for someone as me, like who's just starting out with network, that someone who's more advanced is still spending seventy, eighty percent of cleaning up data. <laughs> I don't know if it's encouraging. Might be more common than you think. Yeah. So thanks again for your time. I wanted to thank Puk for coming here and co-hosting. Just real quickly, this podcast episode is available both via iTunes and at the website www.dheastasia.org. And on the website, 
There will also be posted links to websites, projects, and some of the other links and sources that Javier mentioned or that we mentioned during the podcast. Um, you can also leave your comments or feedback on the website or via email. There's an email address via the website as well. So we look forward to hearing your feedback. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you'll tune in next time.